So you like movies? Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Better. Stronger. Faster. This is Remade in America, a podcast exploring the what, how, and why of foreign movies being remade here in God's land, America. With your hosts, Greg and Vargas. Get to it, boys! Hello, and welcome back to Remade in America, the show with your favorite two cinephiles, Greg Lichtai and Andy Vargas. I'm Greg. And I'm Vargas. And today we're going to be uh, dissecting and diving into the, I would say, the maybe the most popular Remade in America that we may do. Oh, yeah. We have... The, Certainly the most prolific. Right? I, yeah, for <laughs> sure. I think this is the maybe the, the American remake that sparked the american remakes that in the public zeitgeist that's fairly likely i would imagine so we're, yeah. we're talking about seven samurai by akira kurosawa uh-huh. and the magnificent seven by john sturb stuberg stuberg yep two classic films in their own right oh yeah and one so more because it spawned a generation of action films Film, uh, cinematography, and just how to tell a story about um, life in wartime. Yeah, he- heroes selflessly helping people, and all of that gooey movie nonsense mm-hmm. that you've come to expect out of the heroes in your action films. Exactly, P- pretty much started here. <laughs> yeah, and it was done so masterfully that uh, you may be thinking, like, how are these guys going to do anything different? This, these two movies have been talked about at nauseum enough yeah well not by us yeah so buckle in <laughs> champ you're about to have a good old time with your boy greg and vargas here we go all right um so let's start with the original mm-hmm. i think that probably makes sense so kira kurosawa directed seven samurai in came out in 1954 it's the story of a small village farming village in feudal japan uh who routinely are overtaken uh, and robbed of their food and people by this raiding bandit tribe, Mm -hmm. whatever, this flock of bandits, swoops into the town, takes all their stuff, and just leaves. (laughs) And says, see you next year. Pretty much. Um, So the the start of the movie is, yeah, the, the, the hero of the movie is some Japanese name, and I'm gonna get all these names wrong. Right. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. The, uh, um, so please don't don't at me. <laughs> I, I know that I, I'm going to get a lot of these wrong. Please don't cancel us on our second episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, is it Kambe? No, he's the he's the, the swordsman. Anyway, one guy hears the bandits talking about how they're going to come and take their barley, which is a big deal because mm-hmm. they've already taken the people's rice. He's also, like, kind of in disguise by accident. Like, he has yeah. a backpack full of tree branches, and it just so happens he's, like, in a thicket of bushes. Yeah. Like, the perfect camouflage of, like, whoop, thank God they didn't see me. I was wearing my Happen- branch backpack. By happenstance, I was in my ghillie suit. <laughs> yeah, so he hears them saying, we're going we're gonna to take their barley. You know, we already took their rice. We're going to take their barley. And mm-hmm. he's... Basically, these bandits are condemning this village to death. Mm-hmm. So... He goes back to the village and he's like, we need to, we need to fight them. Right. And everybody's like, we're farmers. We can't 
we can't fight this, right? So they go to the village elder. The village elder says, we need to hire samurai. You know, come and protect our village. And in one of the best lines of the movie, they're like, we don't have any money to pay him. And the, the guy's like, because all we have is barley. And the guy's like, well, find hungry samurai. Yeah, find hungry samurai. <laughs> and then such, you got yourself a... It's such a good line. Uh, anyway, so yada, yada, yada. They find these samurai. Well, they find a single guy who is go to a village, big city village, mm-hmm. and they find a samurai who is in the process of cutting off his top knot. Yes. So that he can, it turns out, uh, disguise himself as a monk, mm-hmm. I believe, to go and rescue a kidnapped boy. Right. And they find, you know, they're like, this is this has got to be our guy because he's, he's cutting off his top knot, which is like, pretty big deal a huge like, deal in samurai culture because he's throwing away the symbol of his like station in life mm-hmm. so that he can do the right thing and protect this guy i i unfortunately first heard about that tradition from the last samurai which is the tom cruise vehicle <laughs> yeah where a white man becomes a samurai uh-huh. problematic to begin with but <laughs> in a scene in that movie the, uh, a samurai is defeated and the other samurai cuts off his top knot yeah completely disrespecting him and basically robbing him of the status of, of samurai. samurai. Yeah. So it's just funny that that was the movie that taught me about that. Hey, you know, thank you movies. Even though you're Tom Cruise movies, always teaching, always, I'm, always I'm learning open to learning and te- and movies are there to teach me. <laughs> uh, so they recruit this guy and he's like, yep, I'm going to help you. Yada, yada, yada. They find six other samurai. Yeah. Um, to defend the village. And, they do so mm-hmm. over the course of a 200-minute movie. Good God, uh, this movie. <laughs> oh, this movie, y'all. You thought the Snyder yeah. Cut was bad. This thing is bloated. It's, it's. I mean, it's basically two movies. They right? have an intermission. Like, they have an intermission. This is the first movie I've ever seen where they're just like, okay, intermission, please go pee yeah. because we got two more hours. Yeah. It, it, We'll talk about it a little later. It's a lot of movie. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of movie. Um, but yeah, basically part one is them finding the samurai. Right. And part two is the samurai coming to the village, training the villagers. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of the like character development kind of stuff there. You can start growing with these people, and then they actually fend off the bandits from raiding the village. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's Seven Samurai. Um, what do I like about this movie? Pretty much... Everything. Everything. It's iconic. You get. It, it's going to be hard to find someone who doesn't like something about this movie. It's because it is the quintessential war action movie that your favorite action movie was based off of. Yeah. It's it's going to be hard because of the the icons that this movie, the stereotypes that this movie spawned. Mm-hmm. Not stereotypes. That's the wrong word. Archetypes. Archetypes. Thank you. That this movie spawned in their characters, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to find, especially in an action movie. But basically, any movie that has like a hero helping someone, right? It's going to have some sort of callback or harken to Seven Samurai. This movie is always homaged or depicted in every movie, cartoon series, or whatever as like a nod of just like you know you pay respect to your elders and who came before you of like we're here. Because you made that movie. Yeah. And I think that's so cool that even after 50, 60 years, people still, you know, claim this movie as the pinnacle or the the, the golden status of yeah. movie making. 
because even you look at something like Mandalorian, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Had, had an entire episode that was basically seven samurai. Yeah. Fishing village under siege. Mandalorian and Cara Dune help them fight them off. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it can also be said that the Mandalorian is basically an adaption of Lone Cub. Oh, for sure. Which is just yeah. a wandering samurai who stumbles upon a child who's been abandoned. Oh, yeah. And they go on adventures together. Yep. Essentially across feudal Japan. And that's basically that's what Mandalorian, it's Mandalorian is. Exactly. So, the, so many references and nods to um, Japanese and Chinese filmmaking and culture are so prevalent in American culture that it's just... It, it needs to be said that we owe a debt to those filmmakers from that era. For sure. For sure. Your your favorite movie is is based on something Akira Kurosawa did. Yeah. And he did <laughs> a few whoppers. Yeah. He, to put it lightly. He, he had a run where it's just like, damn, like every movie slapped. Oh, yeah. Because like, well, when you're making, when you're creating it as is like from the from the ground up like you know how everything should go and how everything should work so yeah you're just hitting every cylinder yeah uh, and we'll we'll we will likely do another kurosawa movie on this podcast mm-hmm. i in particular want to do because i forgot about this until i read it researching this episode right that yojimbo is the basis let me let me flip it around. Mm-hmm. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is yes. an unauthorized remake of Yojimbo. Now, just that movie or like the trilogy itself? The Just the movie. Okay. Just Good, Bad, and the Ugly. The first okay. one. All right. So it's Fistful it, of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and then... A few dollars more. A few dollars more. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. I also want to do um, Hidden Fortress and Star Wars because... That's one I don't think a lot of people know about. Yeah, because... And George Lucas has said that the first draft of Star Wars was basically just Hidden Fortress. <laughs> um, and, and it's especially prevalent when you go back and watch Episode 1, mm-hmm. Star Wars Episode 1. Right. Because that's even closer <laughs> to Hidden Fortress. Anyway. Anyway, keep, keep on the lookout for that Keep episode. on the lookout for all of that, because <laughs> Kurosawa has been remixed and remastered. I mean, he's... The Black Sabbath of movie making. Oh, for fucking sure. Right? Like, every guitar riff has been done by Black Sabbath, and everything that came after them is just playing it backwards or upside down or in a different order, right? Different key change or whatever. (laughs) Like, they're just like, yep, that's Black Sabbath. Yeah, exactly. So, we'll we'll stop gushing about Seven Samurai. What, What do you got for us on Magnificent Seven, Greg? So, Magnificent Seven is essentially what you just described in the Old West. How, how can you not like that? <laughs> it came out in 1960, so about a good six years after Seven Samurai. Uh-huh. Um, it is a cool 128 minutes. Real Americanized that, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> it's it's bite-sized, so you know we don't get too overwhelmed and get bored. Yeah, uh, It was directed by John Stur- Sturges and written by William Roberts. Now, w- real- William Roberts, and for the most part, John Sturges, kind of kept in the same wheelhouse of... Westerns, action adventure. They also, um, John Sturges also did The Great Escape, which is like another, oh, yeah, um, like Germany World War Two. It's a World War Two escape yeah. movie, uh, like prisoners and stuff. Uh, basically, the entire cast of Magnificent Seven is also in The Great Escape. Yeah. So, if you like Magnificent Seven, go see The Great Escape for sure. And um, I should be noted that the Magnificent Seven has already been remade 
in America again, yeah. twice as a <laughs> once as a TV show and then once as a movie in yeah. 2016 or something. Yeah, both were mediocre. The superior one is the 1960s version for sure. Um, something that I I learned in my research. So the writer William Roberts was actually brought on to just edit the movie because oh, there was really? a lot of, there was a lot of rewrites during the filming. Okay, and the original writer was so pissed off they brought him in that he said, "Take my name off the movie." I don't want to be credited at all and like just left the set. No kidding. Yeah. So this guy, William Roberts, just kind of got, you know, plucked into or dropped into like just this iconic film. Yeah. Just because that guy threw a hissy fit. And then later, William Roberts went on to write Major Pain in 1995. (laughs) Okay. The Wayans Brother movie. I've got a lot of like mental dissonance here. It's just static right now yeah. happening in your ears. <laughs> Between like Magnificent Seven and Major Pain. I guess they're both movies. They're both they're not Yeah. And I guess <laughs> I, I guess Major Pain is Magnificent Seven esque. Major Pain had to bring together this ragtag the group gra- of okay. kids. <laughs> is there a parallel there? Hot take. Major Pain is a remake of Seven Samurai. <laughs> <laughs> and we will die. We will go to our graves. On that Clinging hill. to that. <laughs> so for for this movie, The Magnificent Seven, this is the 1960s version of The Expendables. This had every oh, yeah. heavy hitter of the time. You had Yul Brynner, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, and James Coburn. Like those dudes were the pinnacle of masculine dude at the time. Oh yeah, and like this was right after Yul Brynner had just done. Uh, the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. and The King and I. So that dude was fire hot. On fire, yeah. Like, he was, they're like, no wonder he's the lead in this fl- this film because he was the big draw. And well, it, it, I think it says a lot that they cast Yule Brenner mm-hmm. when they had access to Steve McQueen. Right. And well, they were like, we're going to go with Yule. Well, <laughs> well, and Steve McQueen at the time had only done a TV show. Right. And so this was his, this was his breakout. Yeah. And he even says that, like... Um, We'll find out later that Steve McQueen and Yul Brynner hated each other on set. Really? Because they were always competing for screen time. And there, in his memoirs, Yul Brynner was just like, whenever I was talking, if you look at Steve McQueen, he's either touching his hat or like, like, like moving in the background so that the audience looks, looks at, him at him instead of Yul Brynner. <laughs> oh my god! And so god. these two divas on set were just at each other's throats. And then later they reconciled and. On on Steve McQueen's deathbed because he died of cancer when he was when he was fifty. Yeah, he thanked Yul Brynner for letting him be in the movie because it wow it, it it was the platform for his career. Yeah, because after that he did The Great Escape, Bullet, and like so many other action films that he's just like revered for. Yeah. So it, and actually I learned out that everyone on set, the director had to have a talk with them of just like no more. You guys are going to kill each other seriously because they kept trying to one up one another with like stunts and like gun tricks to like be able to be on camera more i guess that makes sense i mean it it literally is like doing the expendables only back in the 60s when all these dudes did all this shit themselves Mm -hmm. like fun fact about steve mcqueen he only agreed to be in great escape if he could showcase his motorcycle riding skills oh nice that's why that that end scene uh-huh. he like randomly finds a german motorcycle and there's like a 20 minute scene where have him just like jumping over hills and barbed wire fences <laughs> he was like you do that or i'm out of this movie 
<laughs> this is my reel. This is gonna be my reel for next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my 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 clip take for YouTube. <laughs> so much like Seven Samurai, the Magnificent Seven is we open upon this small Mexican town who is being overran by banditos, and the head bandito Calvera is the leader of the banditos who comes around every year like locusts and just like sets upon this town takes all their food cigars their crops and just he has this like kind of benevolent attitude about him of just like he's like times are tough like i I don't want to steal from you but how am i going to take care of my crew i have to steal from you to keep them alive like you understand right yeah and so he well, takes yeah. this weird gaslighting approach. Well, and he like he greets the town elder or the mayor or whoever with a great big bear hug. Yeah. Like that's how the movie basically opens. Yeah. Is the bad guy hugging the poor villager and then they sit down and he's like Yeah. Time to rob you again. Yeah, I'm taking all oh. your shit. <laughs> I think he even calls him like old friend. Yeah. Like, hello, old friend. How are you? Yeah. And like all the while, everyone, all of his banditos are going into people's homes, taking yeah. just sacks of grain and clothes and stuff. And it's it's just a, a funny way to portray a villain of just like, hey, I don't want to do this, but well, I mean, you know, he, you know he comes across here. almost as like like a high school bully, for sure. You know, who's yeah. like who's like. Hey, what are you doing over there? Like, <laughs> and then he like takes your lunch money and like leaves you. Like yeah. it's really interesting. Well, the the guy, so the guy who portrayed Calvera, who's the head bandito, yeah, Eli Wallach, uh-huh. was also the bad guy in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, he was the ugly. He was the, he was the very ugly. <laughs> um. Oh, one interesting note: everyone in this movie dead in real yeah. life well sure <laughs> the movie came out in 1960 so well you, you never know they could just be holding on for dear life waiting for this episode to come out <laughs> yeah unfortunately we weren't able to get steve mcqueen or yule brenner for an interview yeah they didn't return our calls so we're hoping to get him next time and so the head the the townsfolk much like samurai seven go to their town elder yeah or like he lives basically outside of town too. He's yeah, like, he's like a hermit. He's on like a, a hill. hermit. Yeah, and the hermit's just like, well, you need to go hire. Or you need to go get some guns. No, no, no. Because the the townsfolk go to him and they're like, we're gonna buy guns. That's right. Yeah, and he's like, don't do that. You need to buy guys because guys are cheaper than guns. Mm-hmm. Again, great line. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, I I read somewhere that. The, the the main di- the one of the differences between the original and the remake is that the American version naturally glorifies the idea of violence and defending your town and like yeah. being like a, a a a gunman yeah and Samurai Seven does the opposite like it shows the nitty gritty oh cool, yeah. horrificness of war oh yeah and so like I thought that was not really um something that I'm not surprised that the American version did because this was in the 60s in the height of westerns right like you had John Wayne out there you know slapping his hog around and every other western yeah like this was the time to like be braggadocious about right that kind of action film yeah well, again, right? So when we meet Yule Brenner, mm-hmm. I mean, you'll talk about this. Yeah, when, but when we go to the town. Yeah. He, he drives that wagon up with Steve McQueen up to the top of the hill, mm-hmm. and the dudes meet him with guns, and his response, instead of talking, well, I guess he kind of tries to talk them down, 
but he just like shoots the guns out of their hands and right. stuff like yep totally awesome but also like yeah it's it's a very american answer yeah to uh shoot first talk later yeah exactly it's so, well because like this so we do stumble upon the town because they send like three uh ambassadors from the town to go find gunmen to yeah. help defend them and they i guess stumble upon the only old west town with no women and nothing to do because <laughs> the opening scene is just every dude leaning on a building well looking bored it's an old west times all the firewood was already chopped <laughs> yeah what do you see they did all their chores before morning they're just like well i guess we just wait to die time time for whiskey yeah time for drinking and they, there are no women so i guess we just kiss each other <laughs> And so the, the the scene that you're talking about is they happen across a Native American who had died, died in the street. Yeah. And the stagecoach funeral procession, the, yeah. the hearse, didn't want to drive it up the hill because there was people up there who didn't want a, a Native American buried with white people. Yep. So uh, good old-fashioned Western racism. Yep. Uh, rearing its ugly head. And so Yul Brenner's just like, I'll do it. Dude, like, again, great scene when he's like, you're looking for a driver? I'll get this show on the road. Yeah, like, <laughs> almost like he's just annoyed by it. Just yeah. like, oh my God, like, give me, let's do this. Yeah. And then Steve McQueen's just like, I know how to shoot a gun. He borrows another guy's gun <laughs> and hops in literally shotgun. That's just good old American hospitality. It is. That's just like, oh, you don't have a gun? Here, take my bud. Yeah, he's like, can I borrow that spread shooter? Whatever he yeah. said. And the guy's like, sure. Yeah. Just bring it back full of gas. And <laughs> and the other great part about that scene is that all the other dudes are in town are like, I'll pay for the damn because the the yeah it's like they bet on it yeah the the uh, the Undertaker doesn't want to let Yule Brenner drive the hearse mm -hmm. up to the hill because he's like that cost me four hundred dollars yeah. and everyone in town is like shit I'll cover the expenses I want to see this yeah. shit go down I want to see this <laughs> it's like the kid that says he'll eat a bug yeah in school <laughs> yeah. and everyone's just like I'll put I'll put a quarter in that yeah. I want to see this kid eat a bug yeah and so they and then the town. Who was so afraid to let go up the hill? Follow the first up the hill on foot, on foot, <laughs> and that's where we meet Chicho, uh, Chico, mm -hmm. the the young uh, plucky gunsman, yeah, who wants to be a part of uh, Yul Brenner's gang, and he's like total fanboy right now. He is like, oh yeah, he's like a a, a, a young woman at a. Uh, uh, in sync concert, if you will. Yeah, Justin Bieber show. Yeah, there we go. There's a more <laughs> relevant one. And so he's just like, he's got heart shaped people. He's just like watching these guys up at the cemetery, just like, oh my gosh, they're taking care of business. Look it's how wonderful. cool they are. I wish he, I wish, uh, what's his name? I wish Chris and Vin will be my friends. I want to give him a kiss. Yeah, I'm going to give him smooches. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Chris. Yeah, he's writing it in his <laughs> notebook, notebook for sure. <laughs> For and so sure. they, they successfully get the the body up to Boot Hill. Yep. And they only had to lose two hands of the opposing... <laughs> of the bad guys. Of the yeah. bad guys. And then uh, the the Mexican uh, ambassadors are just like, hey, we saw what you did. We we need help in our town. We're, if these guys come back, and they will, they're going to take everything from us. Yep. And we can't survive. We're tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, Chris, who is Yul Brenner's character, is kind of takes it on as this like this thing of honor of just like, well, 
I'm not really doing anything else. Well, initially, from my recollection, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to do it, right? He's like, I'll help you find guys, but I'm not your guy. Is right? that how it goes down? I think you're right. And then eventually, like, he gets to the town and he sees how nice the little Mexican children are. And he's like, all right, I'm in. Yeah. We got, I guess we're all the way here, so I'll stay. Magnificent Six is a bad title. Yeah, doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> People are going to say Magnificent Sex, and we don't want that we don't want to follow that. us around. We're going to go seven. So then they go about this whole, like, Ocean's Eleven sequence of getting the gang back together. Yeah. And so we get uh, Steve McQueen, who is the cool guy. Oh. He, he's, he just lost all of his money, and so he's... He needs to make some money. He's like, well, I don't want to be a grocery clerk yeah. at this town. Yeah. So I guess I'll go defend this town with you guys and make a little scratch. And I told Greg that I promise this whole episode is not going to be me talking about how cool Steve McQueen is. He's the but coolest. Steve McQueen is the coolest. He is the coolest <laughs> motherfucker. And he died way too early. It's a real bummer, but yeah, he's a he cold was, motherfucker. He, he was an actor and a professional race car driver, which... Someone in this cast actually introduced him to Ferrari, and we'll get to that later oh, in the movie. That's so cool! Yeah, this this movie is just fucking cool, and like so many cool tidbits yeah. uh, of the day. Um, then we uh, are met with well, we're in the scene where like, uh, Vin, who is Steve McQueen's character, was just like, "Okay, yeah, I'll join you." Yeah, and so um, Ch- Chico, yep. who his name is Horst like Burchell or something. Oh yeah, he's the German guy. He's a German actor. This yeah. was his first American film because yeah. he had such great um, uh, acclaim with his European films yeah. that he tried to make it big in Hollywood. He just happened to start in The Magnificent Seven, which kind of, it didn't really launch his career in America, but he did a couple of movies in America that did pretty well. And yeah. Then he did a bunch of um, European films and he died happy and rich. So good for him. Yep. But Yul Brenner tests him to become a gunman by like a clap test, yeah, like like a, like you do in school, like a, like slapping hands or like he tried to like get his hand in between Yul Brynner's claps, yeah, to prove that he is fast enough to be a gunman in this scenario, yeah, and he he doesn't, and Chico is distraught. He stomps out of the room, mm-hmm. wait a huff, fuming. <laughs> I'm going to my room. Do not bother me. Pretty much starts blaring his music. <laughs> Throwing a real hissy fit. He was listening to a lot of Green Day. Yeah, oh, tons of Green Day with a little Avril Lavigne in there. It's just right. to really crank it in. And so he runs off, and then we meet um, Brad Dexter's character, who plays Harry. Now, Harry, I kind of classified as like the Vince Vaughn character. Like he's in it for ulterior motives. Like, oh yeah. He, he thinks Chris, who is Yul Brynner's character, it was just like hiding the real motive of why they're going. Yeah. He thinks there's like a lot of money, or there's like gold or jewels somewhere yeah and so harry's just kind of doing this like wink wink nudge nudge thing i'm just yeah. like oh okay yeah i'll, I'll join you like it, for nothing yeah this is just yeah. for valor yeah twenty dollars wink 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 yeah, yeah you old son of a bitch yeah. i know there's more <laughs> it doesn't even show how harry arrives he's just like outside of the bar all of a he, sudden he shows up immediately after chico runs off in a huff exactly <laughs> it's just like well, that wasn't much character development, but whatever. Let's just go with it. He's Yul Brenner's buddy. Yeah, and he loves money. And then we meet a very young Charles Bronson. Dude. Now, Charles Bronson, if you don't know, is the star of Death Wish 1 through 4 and Family of Cops 1 through 3. Uh-huh. And he is... His career took off when he was 45. He did this movie 
and then he kind of had a blank period, and then he did Death Wish and Family of Cops and like just a bunch of other action movies. Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen, right. And I think he was also in Great Escape. Yes, he was also in Great Escape. And so his career really took off when he was like in his mid-40s. Yeah. And he is a just a hard-drinking, mustache-having, like steely-eyed, like Steven Seagal. Yeah, he's... If this movie were to be remade directly today, mm-hmm. you would cast like not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but like Bruce Willis. Totally, Bruce Willis right? or like um, Idris Elba would would do yeah, a good Charles Bronson. Yeah, he kind of has that steely demeanor to him. Yep. And Charles Bronson is doing the worst job of cutting wood I have ever seen. <laughs> they, but he's doing it himself. <laughs> Woohoo! In Seven Samurai, this dude was just chopping wood, yeah. like it was his job. Like just one strike, and it was right through. Yeah, Charles Bronson needs like three chucks and a plank of wood to get through it. You're cutting through solid American hickory. <laughs> Give the man a break. <laughs> I'm sorry. I guess I didn't take that into account. We have stronger wood up here in America. Yeah, the grain's obvi- tighter, obviously. <laughs> so he's just like in these like Wrangler jeans, shirtless on a hill. And Yul Brenner's just like, hey, you want to come fight? I heard you're out of money. Yeah, he's yeah. like, he's like, I work alone. He's like the loner of the group. Yeah, he's like definitely just like, oh, I don't want to do this. And they're just like, well, we can pay and feed you. And he goes, yeah, okay. Like I yep. got nothing else to do. Where and when? Yeah, yeah. and like he just joins up, and then we get the most two the the two characters next are the most confusing origins. Yeah, we get James Coburn who plays Brit who is, like, they had just done a cattle run, and mm-hmm. they're by a train, and Britt is sleeping, and, like, this other guy's yelling at him because he wants to challenge him to, like, some kind of weird duel. Yeah. We, what I gathered from this scene mm-hmm. was that Britt has, like, a, there, is a, there is a story that follows him. Yes. Where he is, like, the fastest gun in the West, mm-hmm. and everybody's like... This skinny guy? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So Always yeah. being challenged. Yeah, so Homeboy challenges him to a duel, and it doesn't go great for him. No, he <laughs> kills him with a knife. Yeah. He he throws he grabs his knife and throws it right in his chest, which I feel like I don't know how the old West worked, apparently, but everyone was just cool with Brit just offing this dude because he got challenged. Dude. He got challenged. What's he going to do? Not kill the guy? Is that going to hold up in Old West court? Like, your honor, he challenged me and just like, throw this case out. He was challenged. He was challenged. He had witnesses. <laughs> he did have witnesses. That is true. And I'll say this. The guy was threatening him. He was being a little aggressive. He, he was shooting at his feet. He yeah. said, get up, get up. <laughs> now, shooting if at someone his feet. Was, if someone was shooting at my feet, I would also throw a knife at them. That's what I'm saying. But <laughs> it wouldn't hit. It hit him like right in the heart, too. It directly in the heart. Like That's I, how good Brit is. Yeah, I think it, yeah. Your I mean, honor. De- <laughs> the defense rests. <laughs> and then we get Robert Vaughn's character, who is Lee. Now, uh-huh. Lee is this like this dapper, city slicker hired gun and he's like haunted by his past yeah and he, you get we don't really get much of Lee's backstory and he, he seems really bizarre he seems almost like if like Vincent Price wrote this movie like he really wanted Lee to have the lead because he has like the weird murky past yeah. and like 
He's always wearing gloves. Did you notice that? Well, yeah. That's part of his, like, kind of dandy exterior. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. Like, so, Brit, in this whole movie, has 11 lines. Yeah. And Lee has 16. Sure. Which is dumbfounding for a high-profile movie and for these two actors who are, you know, huge actors in their own right to have that little amount of lines. And they're they're not even, like, off-screen. Right. Most of the time, they're on. They're just not talking. Yeah, they're just like the cold, silent type. Yeah, and I thought that was so bizarre that like they only said like eleven different things. Well, when you cut out eighty minutes of movie, well, yeah, you're gonna cut out a lot of talking. A lot of talking. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need that shit with Lee. Get rid of it. But I also think it it works for Brit specifically. Well, it works for both of them really because one of them's got that mysterious past. Yeah, that you don't really need to dive into. The other one's like the silent master, right? Yeah. You know, he's he doesn't need to use his words because his actions speak for his That's prowess. That's very you know? true. Yeah, Lee Lee is like kind of eccentric, whereas Brit is more mysterious. Yeah, like you don't want to fuck with either of them because you know that they'll just destroy you. Yeah, and Lee's having like the yips, like he doesn't know if he's going to be oh, good yeah. in battle anymore or like in a gunfight. So for the majority of the film up until the very end, he doesn't really fire off a shot. Yeah, because he's nervous that he's going to fuck it up. So you're led to believe he did fuck something up previously. Right. In a job and like he either lost somebody he loved or he he lost a partner or something. And yeah. So he's just like in his own head and he can't shoot for shit. Yep. And so we have we have the Magnificent Six. Yeah. Because Yul Brynner at, at this point hasn't signed on. And so they're doing their um, their travels to the town. And Chico is trying to keep pace with them. Yep. Like he's 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 uh in the background, like and they can see him trailing them, and they're yeah. just like, "What is this idiot doing? Like he's gonna get hot and like die of thirst." Yeah. And uh, they're just like, "Let him. Just he's just a stupid kid. He'll leave eventually." Yeah. And the way that he gets like brought into the gang, or like a part of like he's like considered one of their group, is he catches like six fish for them yeah and leaves them on a tree just like hey fellas i know we started off on a rocky foot here you go but here's some trout yeah and everyone just kind of there's like smirks and laughs at one another yeah just there's like, another, no chico it's a it's a totally 60s scene uh-huh where like chico's sitting around a fire and they like come across his fish and they're like ah ha ha fish and they're like come on chico and he's like no you come on <laughs> No, you go. No, you and, go. And now he's part of the team. Yeah. <laughs> he's proved yourself with, like, your fish, fish. catching ability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then the, and then, so I'm confused by this scene, because it happened in Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. They arrive at the town. Yep. Everyone's hiding. And they finally come out to greet them. And the Chico character in both of the films just starts fucking berating the town people of just like this is how you greet us yeah we come here to help you we give up our lives in our own towns you're not worth my time what are you doing all the while everyone in the seven samurai and magnificent seven is just like smirking and just like yeah boy he's really letting them have it <laughs> oh chico <laughs> you should see him catch fish it's magnificent <laughs> but no really you should be nicer yeah and so i thought that was like a weird um 
way to say hello of just like you fucking motherfuckers you better throw us a party yeah it's it's a very like i don't i don't know if it was supposed to be like oh the, the, he because he's clearly entertaining the elder gunslinger samurai guys like mm-hmm. it's you know he's like oh look at this young hot yeah. head look at this spitfire and then it kind of like endears the town to them because they realize that these dudes are not like gonna they're not the banditos yeah whatever. they're not yeah. coming into like rape and murder and all that you know they're not whatever yeah. they're kind of they have a little bit of humor about them <laughs> they got a they got a funny side yeah these, these quirky guys these wild characters and so they they finally get uh quote-unquote introduced to the townspeople and then they are explaining the situation and by then yul brenner's just looking around just like jesus christ they're gonna need all the help they can get yeah and they do a montage they start training all of the people they start building exterior walls to yep. and i thought this was really clever and not really explained but they built the walls and the fences to like strategically um like it's like a maze like it forces yeah. the the banditos to go a certain way which i don't know if that was really explained much in magnificent seven but like it was explained that way in seven samurai yeah. i don't know why they just didn't choose to do that in magnificent seven like i guess you're just supposed to infer of just like, oh, they're doing this for like uh, reasons and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. In Seven Samurai, they explain a little bit better that it's, 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 they built the walls in such a way to funnel the bandits in mm-hmm. and make it hard for them to get out. Right. Cause that's their whole plan is to let them come in basically one by one mm-hmm. and take them out as they get in and can't get out. Right. Yeah. And, um, so all, all while the montage is happening, the, uh, Magnificent Seven are becoming more friendly with the townsfolk. They're really uh, kind of weaving themselves into their everyday affairs and getting to know them on a more personal level. Um, Charles Bronson's character kind of adopts the Huey, Dewey, and Louie of town. Yeah. These three little <laughs> chucklehead kids just keep following them around. And they're kind of cryptic. They're just like, if you die, we'll put flowers on your grave every day. Yeah. And Charles Bronson's like, get the fuck away from Jesus me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you creepy kids. <laughs> God. But they keep following him around. He's just like a surrogate father. Yeah. And they have fathers in the town. They're just like, we want that as our dad. Yeah. And so they're just out, out bugging him. And they... I thought a really poignant scene in Magnificent Seven was they, the townsfolk make this great feast for them yep. as a thank you. And I think Charles Bronson character, he, he comes in, he's just like, you know what they're eating? Yeah. They're eating like dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And everyone just kind of looks at their like carne asada and like, like guacamole and they're like, Ew, shit. <laughs> Oops. And so they take their feast and give it to the townspeople. So I thought that was like a very smart way to just be like, like, no, we're not above you. We're, we're right. here with you to help. Yeah. And during that time, uh, Chico is out surveying the perimeter and runs across a woman. Ooh. Ooh. And all this time, they thought that this was the town without dames. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they take a, they take this woman back to the town they're just like who is this woman and like and there's like are there more yeah and like the mayor's just like yeah we kind of hit him because we thought we like, thought you, you'd rape him we thought you'd rape him <laughs> and then yule brenner goes man we might have <laughs> <laughs> like not meaning just like yeah we might have done that just like you didn't know if we would or not like yeah. that's actually pretty smart like yeah. who knows what we would have done 
And so finally, like all the townspeople come out and they're like, oh, there's children and women here. Like, holy shit, there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Not just these male farmers. (laughs) Right. A town full of dudes. Yeah. We'll talk about a fun town. Woo. I I kept telling Caitlin, like, this was like very campy of a movie. Oh, yeah. Of just like a real way to showcase American machismo. Just like there's one scene where like all the dudes have their shirts off and they're like digging a trench. To like stop the banditos yeah. from getting in, I'm just like, this wasn't necessary. Like, well, I mean, I, Steve McQueen looks good, but I don't need to see him with his shirt off. How about the scene where Steve McQueen's serving all the little town's children the food, uh-huh. and he stops a little girl and he's like, "Hey, do you have a very grateful older sister?" Yeah, and she's like, "No, sir." And he's like, "Damn it, damn it. <laughs> give me back your food." Yeah, but they do the same thing in Seven Samurai. Yeah, where they come out with rice balls and the I think that's the Chico character. He's like the most animated one of yeah. the samurai. Yeah. Um, which every anime character is based off of that interpretation of For sure. Like he is so animated. Yeah. And just bouncing around and like it was a joy to watch him act. Yeah. It was so cool. But in that scene in Seven Samurai, they come out with all these rice balls and there's kids everywhere. And I think he he even calls them piss pants. He's like, All right, you little piss pants, yeah. listen up. Yeah. Who has a hot sister? Yeah. <laughs> and they're all like no one. Not me. Yeah, he's like, damn it. Like, here you go. <laughs> I was like, these dudes are so horny. Like, they're just yeah, they're about to die. They're like, listen, I gotta sow some seeds. <laughs> Who's got a hot sister? Like a bullfighter. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Even a sister will do at this point. <laughs> Any sister. I need to just have a legacy here. <laughs> and so the the town's fully prepared now. Yep. They are. They are. Uh, they they've completely home alone booby trapped <laughs> the town they've got micro machines all in the city square paint cans hanging from rafters yep. the the doorknob in every house is, has a hot iron on it and so they're ready they are ready for the banditos um and they kind of uh, they they've fucked up a little bit because they went on like a, a recon mission and they yeah. shot three of the banditos by mistake yeah because they were just like out and about so they're so uh, Calvera's already tipped off that something's wrong. Yeah, because three of his scouts haven't come back, and so they come to the town and there's like a big gunfight, and it looks as though they've won initially. Yes, because uh, they managed to take out a lot of banditos and Calvera just like runs off. But then we find out that the mayor of the town sold them out. Yeah, he's just like listen. I can't have any more death. Like I reached out to Calvera and was just like, if you promise to stop killing us, you can have whatever you want. Yeah. And then he, they forced the magnificent seven to just like flee. Yeah. Like they, they take their guns and Calvera is just like, I'll give you back your guns. Like once you're at, like, this is just like a a perception. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I need to show that I'm more dominant than you. Yeah. You'll get all your shit back and you can go back. I'm not going to chase you again. Weird. Like, friendly yeah. bad guy he's a total sweetheart yeah <laughs> yeah he is he's a bloodthirsty <laughs> sweetheart and i liked how he was just like because i think calvera knew he's just like listen i know you guys can fucking take me and the only reason i won is because i weaseled it out of you right like so he's like i think he's keeping that air of friendship but but yeah he's like he's like i get that you you guys are just in it for the money mm-hmm. you can take you know whatever yeah, here's some, you're here's some fine money. yeah, yeah. and so it, and I think it, that benefits Calvera more of just like he he wants them. It, they don't. It doesn't benefit him dead or alive, really. Right. As long as he's just like left alone. Yeah. Because he was just running that 
train of towns that he would just visit and take stuff from. Yeah. Much like Seven Samurai. Like, that was a, that's a pretty sweet deal as a bandito. Oh, yeah. Ride in, get some free stuff, and then ride the hell out. Yep. And so they they uh, are outside of town. They get their guns back, and everyone's just like, well, now what do we do? Right. And your Brenner's just like, well, I'm fucking going back. Like, this is personal now. I'm going to yeah. kill that motherfucker. And uh, uh, Harry was just like, nah, it's just too rich for my blood. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out of here. He's like, Harry was the guy that's in it just for the money. Yeah. Anyway, so he's like, if there's no money, I'm out. I'm gone. Yeah. And so he takes off, and then they form like their own plan to kind of sneak back into town and and to, to take it back and to rescue everyone. Yeah. And this is where we start seeing a lot of deaths happen. Yep. In 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 the Magnificent Seven, which dwindles down to at the end the Magnificent Three. Yep. And uh, so. It, the gun battle ensues. Uh, Charles Bronson is shot, and he he's shot protecting his three, three Huey, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yeah, like they're in like I think they're actually are they in a cemetery too? Like he's dodging between gravestones. gravestones. Yeah, I think you're right. And so he's shot and dies there, and they're super duper sad. And then Lee, who is the city slicker, finally gets his gumption. And freeze everyone that's like in a house, but then he gets shot up. Yep. And then Brit is like just often dudes left and right, and yeah. then he fucks up by exposing his cover by standing up and taking other people out, and then he gets shot. Yep. And something interesting about um, the final battle scene, you're you're never shown who shoots the Magnificent Seven characters. Yeah. It's just ambiguous because it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because yeah. they're not getting avenged. It's just like. They're, they died an honorable death. That's yeah. what you need to focus on. And um, so who who's left? Uh, Harry comes back. Yes. He makes a magnificent comeback, and he saves Yul Brynner. Yul Brynner, yep. And in the process, he gets shot, and they have this sweet scene between Chris and Harry of just like, tell me there's gold. Just yeah. lie to me. Tell me there's gold in the mountains, and I'm not dying for anything. And Chris, Yul Brynner's character, is just like, that mountain's full of gold, man. Like, yeah. That's why we're here. And he dies with a grin on his face, which I thought was pretty sweet. Yeah. Pretty uh, Americana, like... Oh, know, heartwarming for yeah, sure. Heartwarming. Yeah, heartwarming. Yeah. And then... Um, so that's... Uh, I think that's it. Chris yep. survives, Vin survives, and Chico survives. Yep. And all of them... And Chico gets the girl. He gets the farmhand's daughter or that's whatever. The main dif- one of the main differences from the original yep. is uh, in the Seven Samurai, they all leave. And they don't come back and then yeah. Chico in Magnificent Seven just like you know what I love this girl that I found and I'm gonna stay here and help this town yep and um, yeah that was that was one of the big differences is uh, Chico gets the girl whereas what's his counterpoint's name uh, Katsuhiro mm-hmm. um, does not get the girl he falls in love with one of the farmhand's daughters but the farmhand guy is like you've dishonored my daughter you're you know you you were never gonna marry her so he does not mm-hmm. end up with love at the end of the movie um just like the remake three samurai are left at the end yeah same three characters basically uh-huh. right you'll burn her character steve mcqueen character and chico yeah. um what i thought was super interesting about the way that the characters die between the two movies okay is 
Magnificent Seven has a lot more like heroic deaths. Yes, yeah. The, the guys die defending children or rescuing a barn full of women or whatever. Yeah. Whereas like in Seven Samurai, they all just kind of die like not in the street, but in the street, right? Yeah. They're just fighting for this town and just die. And you do not see any of them coming. Like no. <laughs> like, well, I think it, I I read somewhere that Kurosawa did that purposefully. He didn't want to glorify violence and war and stuff. Right. This was very much just it's just a reality of the situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like he did it wonderfully. Like that 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 mud scene where they're all just like stumbling around and just like exhausted and fighting like you felt that. You felt yeah. the heaviness of that scene. You're just like fucking hell. Like this is war. This yeah. is this is violence and like this is not glorified in the least. Especially compared to like other samurai movies where mm-hmm. you you know, those same fights would be in a field full of grass with cherry blossoms flying, right. through, you know, and a movie we mentioned earlier, The Last Samurai, that's every battle that's in The Last Samurai. Exactly right. But obviously, like, when you're watching it, that's that's great to watch. It's very cinematic, whatever. Yeah. But, like, clearly, the Kurosawa version is what fights were actually like. Oh, yeah. Like... And that's why it's considered one of the greats. It's just, like, it's so real. It's real, Yeah. So another another interesting comparison I thought was that the bandit horde and we've kind of talked about this so yeah. I'll glaze over it a little bit. The bandit horde in Seven Samurai is a lot more to me like a plague of locusts. Yeah. Like it was a lot more just like a force of nature. This thing happens every year. These dudes come in, they sweep in, they sweep out. They can't be negotiated with. That's the thing. Yeah, they're and, just like chaotic. Yeah, and it was like we've talked about the basically the exact opposite you had uh calvera who was the face of this horde yeah and very charismatic yeah totally charismatic but you got the feeling that if yule brenner or steve mcqueen could just kill this guy mm-hmm. the problem would be over the bandits would run away totally. and everything would be fine and dandy but in seven samurai it's a lot more imposing because if the bandit leader is killed you still get the feeling that somebody else is just going to rise through or these guys aren't going to give a shit and they're just going to keep coming they have to be wiped out to the last man it's like the hydra just like you cut one head off and two is going to come right back exactly that is horrifying yeah um so it it felt to me more like the seven the samurai were like the 300 spartans or something oh wow! you know just like seven dudes against this tidal wave of people yeah and they they know what's gonna come, mm-hmm. but they do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so, and Magnificent Seven has you know that fairly similar scene where they have the opportunity to run away, but they come yeah. back for a different reason. Yeah, because they it's personal. They want right. revenge on right. the guy, the one dude, right. Calvera. And, and at they, that point, it's not even about saving the town; it's about saving their honor. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's like you can't trick me, motherfucker. Like no. Right. It's it's honor from two different standpoints, right? Yes, like honor yes. honor by way of revenge versus honor by way of like standing your ground, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting and pretty like telling of where the movie was made, right? Uh, 100%, like, yeah, it's a very American Western ideal to get revenge on the bandito leader mm-hmm. versus a very Japanese idea of doing the right thing for the right thing's sake, right? Right. Um, I also thought, uh, Ri- Riki Rishi. Yes. was the guy's name i wrote it down in here and i couldn't remember oh, gotcha. he he was like the the ambassador that found 
the samurai. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, his backstory where his wife got captured and turned into like a concubine. Yeah. Totally changed that movie. Yeah. Like it turned him almost into a hero as in, in his own as right. important as the samurai. Yeah. Right. Because it's not just about him suffering the hunger that the rest of the town is suffering. It becomes a personal vendetta for this guy. And it just shows like his character and like his resolve. Yeah. As a person, like to go through that traumatic event and then just to like take on this. Yeah. Uh, duty to like find these warriors. You're just like, God, how do you even get up in the morning to like keep going? Yeah, exactly. And it's like Kurosawa, like this film is like just a gut punch after gut punch of just brutal reality. Yeah. And, and it's in its rawest sense. But the cool part about it is that you still have like the whole point of the movie. You have all of this like brutality all around you, mm-hmm. but you still have these dudes that are like pillars of virtue. They're doing the right mm-hmm. thing for the right thing's sake. Yeah. Because that's what people should do. Yeah. Well, that's what they, that's why they became a samurai to begin with. Yeah, like, exactly. It's a virtuous um, uh, title. Yeah. Um, and then the the end of both movies just like rips me apart. That these like these characters, especially in Seven Samurai, not to belittle Magnificent Seven because right. it's a great movie, but like you spent 180 minutes with these seven dudes, and then to see them just get like struck down yeah. in a fight with no like no fanfare there's Mm no you know they're not again dying for rescuing a woman a barn full of women or saving a kid or whatever they're just Mm -hmm. like you know get an arrow to the back or a sword to the neck or whatever and just like that's it yeah game over that that just it just speaks to the really the luck of the draw yeah in war or in battle yeah like you could be the best warrior and for all accounts these gentlemen were just one misstep or one miscalculation and you're done. Yeah. And then for as wistful and as like rose colored of that magnificent seven was the ending point of just like, we didn't win today. The farmers won because they got their town back, but we, the magnificent, magnificent seven did not win. Yeah. And basically the same line as at the end of seven samurai, Mm -hmm. right? Where like we lost. Yeah. But the village won. And that's the life of a Western gunslinger and the life of a samurai. Right. That's what it, it is. It's and it's such like it's just a poignant message that um, that you don't well you don't really expect from Magnificent Seven, but yeah, in Seven Samurai, it's just like the just the the, the sad cherry on top. Yeah, exactly. Of a, of a beautiful cake. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say something else about uh, the Magnificent Seven that um. Anyway, he cut this dead air out, dead air out. But um, so do you like Frank Sinatra? Yeah. Who doesn't? Fair. Frank Sinatra is this great crooner singer from that from this era, the '60s. Uh huh. You need to thank Brad Dexter because without him, Frank Sinatra would be dead. Okay. And here's the story behind it. All right. Brad Dexter was out shooting a film in Hawaii. With Frank Sinatra. Okay. And they were swimming in the ocean. Uh-huh. Frank Sinatra got pulled out by the way, by the tide. It was like oh. way out there. Yeah. And Brad Dexter saw it and ran from the beach 
and like treaded water for 45 minutes with Frank Sinatra, like because Frank had like gone unconscious because he couldn't oh shit keep up the energy. And so, like he and he won a Medal of Honor for it. Like he read, he won the red. He he was a awarded the Red Cross like valor of like excellence or something. Like they, no gave, him a, they gave him a, an award for for saving a, saving Frank Sinatra's <laughs> life. Yeah, and B just like showing such great like selflessness and like just um I don't know like bravery. Yeah, care for your fellow man. And I thought like what a fucking turn of events like. Can you imagine the musical landscape if Brad Dexter hadn't saved Frank yeah. Sinatra and like in the sixties? Like, oh, right? That's like right around Rat Pack. That's right around when they made their Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, and he was in countless other films. It's just like Frank Sinatra in his own right was like a a pop culture icon. Oh yeah, that that fueled so many other avenues of our society and our culture today. That's wild. So I thought that was batshit crazy. So without, what's his name? Dexter? Brad, Brad Dexter. Brad he, he Dexter. He played Harry. He played the Vince oh, Vaughn yeah. character. So without Brad Dexter, we wouldn't have had Die Hard. <laughs> You're exactly right. Because Die Hard was originally created as a sequel to a Frank Sinatra movie. Yep. You're 100% <laughs> dead on. You would never have gotten Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, because of Brad Dexter. Wow. That's wild. And I think Brad, no, it wasn't Brad. It may have been Brad Dexter or... James Coburn, who introduced Steve McQueen to Ferraris. To Ferraris. And, like, got him into his love of... I think it was Coburn. He They introduced him to his love of, like, motorcycles and fast cars and shit. Yeah. And, like... And later in life, James Coburn, like, sold, jet like, uh, expensive cars to, like, Japanese people. Oh, okay. And, like, that's how he, like, earned money. He just, like... Yeah. Collected these incredible cars and then sold them overseas. Bought and sold them. Yeah, interesting. It was just so crazy. And um, Robert Vaughn in his 2008 memoirs, he's, he 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 uh, he confided that everyone on set had violent diarrhea the entire time they were filming this movie. What? Because of I don't know if there's something that was like was eaten or like yeah. that they drank, but like they were all just like shitting their brains out the entire time they were filming oh, this. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought that was like, hey, Robert, you didn't need to tell everyone that yeah. everyone on the Magnificent Seven set had violent diarrhea. Yeah, Robert, why'd you have to rip off my rose-colored glasses and then take a violent and, diarrhea shit on them? <laughs> and then shit on said glasses. <laughs> I thought, yeah, th- there are so many great things about both movies. Yeah. Um, I think as part of American culture, this was a huge movie. Oh, yeah. That a lot of... And, and it actually didn't do really well in America in the beginning. Right. It did really well overseas. But for whatever reason, it didn't catch fire when it was released in theaters. And then kind of... I think a couple of years later, it really took off. Yeah. Why? I have no idea. Maybe westerns were played out at the time or whatever yeah i mean 1960 was kind of the end of the western the western era. right because yeah. the early 50s were really like john mm-hmm. ford's time that's when you got like sure. the searchers and painter wagon and all those yeah. like classic iconic westerns yeah. so the 60s yeah were kind of the end of it i guess that makes sense but and what i thought was really interesting the beginning of magnificent seven i don't know if you noticed or not there was an entire title card of just like this was inspired by Seven Samurai. Yeah, like they they owned it. They came out instead of just like 
it, you really don't see that in those older films that they're just like if they give credit it's usually at the end of like in the credits and they're just like oh by the way this was kind of based off of yeah but like in the title screen they're just like btw this was based off of seven samurai by akira kurosawa yeah and i wonder so i'm looking at because again um yojimbo was the, right. the uh, um inspiration i'll say for um good the bad and the ugly good bad and the ugly thank you but you but, but you told me earlier that the guy got sued over yeah it. they they took sergio leone to court over that movie so i'm wondering what the time frame uh, do you know what i mean yeah, so yeah, like yeah and i think i mentioned it off air but um St- uh, steve mcqueen and yule brenner were not friends yeah on this set they they were constantly battling for like uh, screen time and always trying to outdo one another and that kind of bled into the other cast members so they're just like well if they're going to be doing this I'm going to be start doing it too and the, everyone was just like trying to one up one another and like trying to do crazier stunts so much to the point where John Sturgis had to sit everyone down that's so crazy and be like knock it the fuck off you're going to kill each other and I'm not paying for your funerals like enough total divas every one of them (laughs) every one of them is a diva and they're just like nope i'm gonna get the most screen time i'm gonna touch my hat here i'm gonna flip my gun all cool i'm gonna be moving around in the background (laughs) and i was just like even even these like tough dudes are just like not above like just the vamp and the campiness of just like yeah the most screen time so good the bad and the ugly came out in 66 six years after this movie Oh, so they should have so learned their lesson. You'd think, right? Yeah. Um, my This is my final bit of trivia. James Colburn, who was Brit, yeah. and Steve McQueen, who was Vin, were pallbearers at Bruce Lee's funeral. Interesting. They were both really good friends to Bruce, Bruce Lee. Lee, and when he passed away, they were they were pallbearers. Wild. Fucking crazy. Yeah. It, it's Hollywood back in the 60s was... <laughs> A incestuous rat's nest of everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody. Crazy. All right. So yes, the, I think the question we have to ask, mm-hmm. and I think the answer has been fairly evident in the way we've gushed over both these movies. But yeah. did Seven Samurai need an American remake? Did um, Did Magnificent Seven significantly add anything to Seven Samurai? Did it okay? So did did Magnificent Seven add anything to Seven Samurai? No, but okay. did Magnificent Seven add something to the American cinema landscape? Right. Hell yes. Yeah. And one hundred percent yes, because it it kicked off the career of Steve McQueen. It solidified that Yul Brenner's a fucking hoss. <laughs> and it Chuck Bronson. And yeah, Chuck Bronson got his <laughs> taste of the limelight there a little bit, and then he had a fantastic career towards the end of his life. Like. Yeah. I think that the movie that is the the most superior is obviously Seven Samurai, without a doubt. Yeah. But we owe um, American audiences owe a lot to Magnificent Seven, which owes a great debt to Seven Samurai. Yeah. So I would say, I would say that yes, Seven Samurai needed the American remake just for the benefit of american culture yeah i and i would agree right like if you're sitting somebody down who's never seen either movie mm-hmm. you would probably want to show them magnificent seven first 
because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's a far easier movie to digest yeah. as an American. Because it's it has iconography that we exactly are accustomed to, right? And then if they liked it, you would show them Seven Samurai, right? Totally. Seven Samurai is just like I don't know a, a really good steak. Yeah, and like Magnificent Seven is like a really good cheeseburger. Yeah, like they're both s- they're both great. Yeah. in their own right. Yeah, yeah. One is just like more complex. More complex. That's exactly right. And sometimes when you're eating a steak, you need an intervention or in- intermission and, <laughs> yeah. and an intervention. You never know how much steak are you eating. <laughs> Seventy two ounces and it's free. <laughs> So I mean, I think this is one of the times where it is. Can it be a draw? Can it like they they both need to exist? Oh yeah, to I, to help just film. I totally and agree. Cinema. I totally agree. Um, and I think I well I know seven Magnificent Seven is in Library of Congress. It is yeah, and I'm fairly confident that Seven Samurai is as well. I know it's on the AFI Top 100. Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree that that these movies are both totally iconic in their own rights, mm-hmm. totally worth a watch. Yep, and and just beloved by their audiences. Yeah, and I honestly holds up to the test of time. Oh yeah, because most of the films, like from the fifties and sixties, has like that weird twinge of racism, sexism, whole yeah. lot of isms that they're just kind of ignorant to this one was fairly you know fine there wasn't really anything especially magnificent seven like i i thought it was going to be a little bit rough when like you had clearly white people playing mexicans and like you know they but yeah i i mean they kind of bucked all that specifically at the scene that opens the movie not opens the movie but right, right. Be- when you meet Yul Brenner, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when he's like I don't care that this guy was a Native American right. he deserves to be buried like any other person like a human like a human being right and and that theme carries throughout the whole movie because the Mexican guys go to him and they're like you don't care that we're Mexican you mm-hmm. can clearly see that we're people in need of help well and I also heard that when they were filming Magnificent Seven they had Mexican representatives from like the film board or something to make sure that they were represented um, like respectfully on screen. Oh, really? So like they had um, like Mexican like uh, I don't want to say like CEOs. Cultural advisors or something? Pretty much. Yeah. Just like, no, we're not letting this happen. Yeah. And like one of the scenes was or one of the stipulations was every um, Mexican extra, like one of the farmers, yeah. they had to be in clean clothes. Oh, so they didn't look dirty. So they yeah. didn't look dirty and like they were like poor and destitute. Yeah. Like, that's like we don't want to be portrayed as like a filthy, disgusting, dirty, poor people. Yeah. So like you got to put them in clean clothes in every scene. And so like that kind of slowed down production because washing all those scenes right. or washing all those clothes all the time like takes up some time. Yeah. And so I thought that was probably that which led to why this movie kind of aged well. Yeah. Is that there wasn't like just some white director and they're just like eh fuck it like say whatever you want who gives a shit yeah and like it really it solidifies itself to one of the greatest well it could have it could have easily turned into like a white savior movie right totally where like yeah some Mexican guys don't know what they're doing 
So they call up Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, and they you know come in with Superman capes on and yep. save the day and and you know kiss save the those kiss the girl stupid poor immigrants <laughs> yeah exactly but yeah you're right it totally was not that movie at all to its benefit to our benefit because you yeah. can watch it in 2021 and and enjoy not it. not yeah. cringe at it yeah I, I didn't find any cringe moments really in it yeah. And I didn't that, either. That was shocking to me. So yeah. I don't think we're going to get much of this on this show of where both movies are great and we suggest both of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this was a nice surprise that both movies were fantastic films. Yeah. Especially coming off of our previous episode. This was like a total palate cleanser. <laughs> 100%. So um, that was our episode for Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. I don't have anything else to add. Vargas, do you got anything else you want to add to the episode? Watch both of them. Really do. <laughs> Make sure you have like a weekend to watch Seven Samurai. Like you might want to take breaks in between. I would. I would recommend taking two additional intermissions. Yes, <laughs> for like, food and peeing and. I needed a break a lot in that movie. <laughs> there, there's that movie is dense. There's yeah. a lot happening. Yeah. And oh. so Kurosawa, uh, one, one final point. He did every scene like two or three times with different camera angles yeah. and different cameras. Dude's a master. Go look it up. Go watch it. Yeah. As it pertains to this show, find us on social media. Um, you can find me personally on Twitter. I'm at Greg Liktai. You can find us for the show. It's at Remade in America. Um, we got emails. We got everything. We got, We don't have Instagram or anything like that. We're just on Twitter. Yeah. Um, if you have a movie that is remade in America from a foreign film, let us know and we'll cover it. Um, that's all I got for me. Andy, you got anything else? Uh, I'm at Just a Vargas. If you want to tweet at me, tell me how I'm wrong about these movies. <laughs> tell me how to pronounce these names because I still don't know how to. It's very hard. But <laughs> it's very hard and we do our best. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you all in the next episode. Bye. <laughs>